Well, good morning. Happy to be here worshiping with you this morning. And JJ, that outfit, as Pastor Tom was saying, that is awesome, man. That is flashy. <laughs> well, my name is Gary. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the youth pastor. Now, I'm going to emphasize youth pastor. <laughs> Thank you. So you give me a little bit of a break this morning as I fill in for Pastor Brent, as Pastor Brent's getting a much-deserved little vacation. He and his three daughters went down to Florida to visit his mother. Um, so keep them in your prayers, especially as they travel back home later this week. And we're, we're really glad that he's able to get a breather. You know, he's done an incredible job over this past year. He truly has. So, yeah, done a great job. So we're glad he's getting a breather, and um, hopefully he comes back next week, is able to fill the pulpit, re-energized and refreshed, and able to bring the message to us. Now, last weekend, we were at snow camp with the senior hires. And there's a picture up there for you to see the group. And we had an awesome time. I'm going to show you some more pictures, maybe a video in a couple weeks. But this is the picture you get for now. Um, but it was awesome being able to go out, get up on the mountain, and just unplug and focus on God. And we really were able to do that. That was the focal point of the weekend. And uh, if you see, you can see some of the leaders littered in throughout there. And I just want to brag on the leaders. We have some incredible youth leaders here at Faith. We truly do. And they are just, it's a privilege to serve beside them every week. They're there week after week. And they love God and they love the teens. So our youth leaders are incredible. So parents, make sure you thank them for the time they, they put into that. They go up there for a full weekend and freeze <laughs> and have an awesome time with your teens because they love them. Now, uh, if you see the teens up there, we had a couple adjustments as everything has been, right? Restrictions with COVID. We could only take a limited group. We could only take 35, so it was first come, first serve, and we had to wear masks. It's not everybody's favorite thing to do, but it was awesome how that wasn't the focal point. They didn't make the mask the big focal point. They didn't complain about it. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, it probably bothered me more than it bothered them, um, but it, it was one of those things that we really did focus on God and not make that the focal point, and the weekend was just incredible because of that. So we had a great time. And I want to thank you guys, the congregation, for your prayers. I want to thank you for your sponsorships that allowed some to go who weren't able to go. And uh, it was just an awesome time. And, you know, it really is you're investing in the leaders of the next generation of the church here. They will be the leaders growing up in this church, even though they're already serving. Um, but you're investing in that kingdom. Now, before I get into the sermon, I'd like to open us in prayer. You know, ask God to settle my nerves down. A little different in the big church than it is in front of the teens. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Dear God, Lord, I ask you right now to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I ask you to speak through me, God, in a, in a, in a way that only you can. God, I ask that this message only brings glory to you and you alone. And Lord, for those who are sitting in this sanctuary right now, those who are in the Belize Center, those who are watching online, God, help them to have their hearts and their ears open and receptive to your word and to what you would have them get out of this message this morning. Lord, we truly hope you are pleased this morning. In your precious name, amen. Well, <clears throat> Pastor Brent's been leading us through the book of John. He's been pointing out certain aspects as we go along through it. And so he asked me to tackle this passage this morning in John chapter 2. And it's been really interesting to see John's account as we go through his gospel. And Pastor Brent's actually said it before that John's a little different than the synoptic gospels. Now, the synoptic gospels are simply Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then here comes the fourth gospel in John. 
Now, it's different not just because it's a, it um, is at a chronological order, but also because there's less than half the amount of miracles recorded in it. It's crazy because the synoptic gospels all have close to 20 miracles on average in each book. And then we get to John, and there's seven main miracles that he focuses on. But I think this really shows that John carefully selected his material, and he put more emphasis on the message than the actual miracles. You know, guys, it's kind of like ESPN. I know you guys all like ESPN, right? The web jams, top plays of the week, or a buzzer beater at the last minute. That's kind of what John does here. He's highlighting those certain miracles, certain works of Jesus' ministry to help his audience, us, to have faith and to believe. And John wrote this gospel so the Holy Spirit could produce faith in hearts like yours and mine. Those of us who are living today without an earthly eyewitness account of Jesus. And John actually had that eyewitness account. It's almost as if John cuts through some of the weeds and he gets down to the main points of why Jesus came on earth. And so it makes sense why his gospel is a little different and how he, he tends to focus on certain aspects more so than the synoptic gospels. So we're going to start off this morning, if you could turn over to John chapter 2, verse 12. And in NASB, it says the first two words after this. Some versions actually explain what that is. But after this is simply the wedding at Cana, as Pastor Brent talked about last week, that miracle of turning water into wine. So after this wedding, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother his, and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, before we get too deep into it, there's something that's debated between theologians about this passage. Just to give you a heads up, the, ta- the passage we're tackling this morning is cleansing of the temple. But what's debated is not whether it contains a miracle or not, but the unusual placement of the event by John. It's interesting because John places this at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2. And it's odd because the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all place this event of cleansing the temple at the last visit to Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death. So this could be the difference of two to three years. So we have a few different choices here. John may be right, or the synoptics may be right. That's an option. Or there's two similar occasions. The one that John recorded at the beginning of Jesus' ministry And then there's another occasion that the synoptics record, or John has rearranged his material simply for theological purposes. Now, if you look into this, go home and Google this, check into this, it is quite amazing how many different theologians and really well-known pastors fall on different sides of this fact. But I think that probably shows that this isn't the main point of the passage, and it's not super important whether we get it right or not. And... I'm certainly no Bible scholar, but after studying this passage and studying the surrounding gospel passages around this, I could easily see there being, or definitely see there being a possibility of two similar occasions. It's really not that far-fetched to think that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. I could easily see, actually, uh, them bringing the money changers and the animals right back in a few weeks after Jesus shook things up. And considering Jesus' ministry spanned three years, they would have had plenty of time to get back into the groove of doing those things. We also see that in Jesus' response. His response is much more direct in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than it is in John. And I think that second time would probably be that breaking point for the religious leaders 
You know, that's that breaking point where they put action into his apprehension and arrest. Again, that's only my thoughts on the situation and something to keep in mind as we work our way through this passage. Now, as we just read verse 12, there was a few different locations that came up. So I just have this map up here of that time. Um, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on. Because the wedding of Cana, as you see Cana up there, then he went to Jerusalem. I mean, sorry, went to Capernaum. Capernaum's not too far from his hometown of Nazareth. It's probably only about 20 miles from Cana to Capernaum. And interestingly, Capernaum is on the north shore of Galilee there. And that's where he spent a lot of his time during his ministry and performed some miracles as well. And then it says, after Capernaum, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, if anybody sees Jerusalem up there, it's down south from Capernaum. But they say up to Jerusalem because it's higher in elevation. It's kind of like us saying, this weekend we're going to go up to Mount Washington. Higher in elevation, but it's, you know, southwest of us. So that's the idea there. It's about 79 miles from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. And it'd take about a four-day walk to get there. Now, the setting of our passage is actually in the, in the court or in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's in the actual court of the Gentiles, if you see on that map, the outer area. It's not the sacred enclosure of the temple, but the outer area. That's where it's taking place. But it's not just any old day at the temple where you see the typical visitors come in and do their daily prayers and daily sacrifices. No, this was the Passover of the Jews. And it was quite the celebration. It's actually said that it's comparable to our week of Christmas nowadays. Where, you know, the anticipation and the excitement's running really high and everybody's super excited when it comes. My house is insane during Christmas. <laughs> My kids start asking me, hey dad, is it almost Christmas? In July. <laughs> and all the way leading up to Christmas. So by the time Christmas arrives, the anticipation and the excitement is sky high and we are ready to roll. So during this time, nerves were always high. The people were always hoping something amazing would happen during the Passover. Because you got to remember, they've been anticipating Christ's return for quite some time now. Even though they expected him to come in a different way than he arrived, obviously. Well, it's estimated by different theologians that it could have been hundreds of thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem during the Passover. So it was a massive celebration. And it was mandatory for the Jews to attend. And it's really interesting because throughout Jesus's ministry, throughout his life, actually, we see that he kept the laws of the Passover. He was always present and he did fulfill that law throughout his lifetime. And it's interesting also, as we read the Bible, the Jews set apart feasts throughout the year. They do this to remember past deliverances. And really, we as Christ followers should remember past deliverances as well. You know, those times that God has pulled us through certain situations. We need to reflect and look back at those past deliverances, just as Jesus was a perfect example here of doing that. Now, just as a reminder, Pastor Tom talked a couple weeks ago about, about the Passover and all that that involved. And uh, that was the Israelites uh, still in bondage of the Egyptians. And if you remember in the book of Exodus, um, while they were in bondage, they were told to sacrifice the lamb. So they sacrificed the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and then when the angel of the Lord comes along, he would literally pass over their house, and that would spare them from killing their firstborn. So the blood of the sacrificial lamb here is what delivered them from the death of their firstborn. Now back to the Passover celebration. It was probably quite a bit different than what Jesus was used to back in his hometown of Nazareth. 
I kind of picture it's like going from Waterville down to Boston, Mass., right, with all the hustle and bustle. It's, it's crazy down there. In fact, when we take our seniors down every spring for the, for the senior trip, there's typically one senior who's never been out of the state or never been to Boston. So it's quite a shock when they realize how different it is walking in Boston than it is in Waterville. And I want you to keep in mind, this would be the scene that's taking place as we approach verse 14. It says, And within the temple grounds he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things from here, away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, when I was 19 years old, I was working for a construction company down in Portland. And we were hanging cedar clapboards on the side of a garage. It was probably about a 25-foot span. And uh, our construction crew, we got a little sloppy, a little bit too much in a hurry. <laughs> and so for a few rows, we started hanging the right side a little higher than the left. Now, my boss, he was 6'3", 6'4", he was a massive man, looked over and saw the mistake and came storming over and started ripping those clapboards off the side of the wall and throwing them all over the place. So that is what I picture when I read this passage. Now, if you need a better picture, I want to invite you to our senior high youth group tonight during a game we call Hunger Games. All right, there's balls flying all over the place. It's dangerous. Kids run in every which way. It is insane. It's a chaotic place. And that's kind of the picture I'm trying to paint for you right now. Think of a chaotic place. That's what's taking place. But there's a certain area of the temple where the problem actually arises, as we see at the beginning of verse 14. It's in the temple grounds or the outer court area. This is where the, the place where the Gentiles could pray. So it was a special place reserved for their worship. And even though it was a pretty big area, as you saw on the map, it's not intended to fit this big of a crowd with all the animals, goods, and everything else. I don't think there was any social distancing going on there at all. But, I mean, this place would be absolutely packed full. Now, my mind goes directly to, like, a sporting event. I think there could be vendors walking around, hot dogs, hot dogs, get your hot dogs here, right? May have been a little different. It was more like oxen. All right, get your oxen here. <laughs> but the, the salesmen were probably really focused on making the most of this opportunity while the big crowds were in town, just like any vendors. <clears throat> Imagine for a minute, though, if you came in this morning, you sat down at your typical seat, and all of a sudden you heard lambs bleeding over in this corner. That's making the noise bleeding, all right? Oxen making a big ruckus over here, doves cooing over in this corner. And then we start the service. And you have to sit there and try to pay attention and worship God with that chaos going on. Now, obviously, the noise itself would not be conducive to worship. That's not even getting into the irreverence and the disrespect to the house of God. Now, these foreign money changers and the animals that were here at the temple uh, probably started out as a good idea. You know, probably out of convenience, almost like Walmart. You can get a little bit of everything right there at Walmart. So then those travelers who traveled from far away, who came to Jerusalem, uh, could have a one-stop shop at the temple. They didn't have to spend a whole day going around trying to exchange their currency, getting the right currency, or going from farm to farm looking for the right animal for sacrifice. It would almost be like car shopping at that point, right? But a little side note here. The priest could actually turn away an animal that was not fit for sacrifice. 
So most likely there was extortion and dishonest gain going on right here at the temple. But like I said before, the animals and exchanging currency probably started out and it would make it a lot easier. And why not make a little bit of extra money during the Torah season, the Passover? Now, we have to be very careful of not viewing these sellers as if they're the victims or if they're unaware of what they're doing. Because it may may be true, they're a little ignorant to their business in relation to the glory of God and how irreverent it was. But the root of the problem was in the heart of the people. And it quickly turned to making profit and taking advantage of God's people and his holy holy temple. The focus and priority was not about bringing glory to God and worshiping him. Instead, it brought God's house to a lowly state of a den of robbers. And interestingly enough, that is Jesus' response in the Synoptic Gospels, even though he doesn't use that exact same phrase here in John. But the leaders of the temple took their eyes off of God, and that's if their eyes were ever on God in the first place, as we're going to see by their response. They began loving money and taking advantage of those who were coming to worship and sacrifice to God. Now, the leaders and the sellers were actually the ones that Jesus directed his wrath at. They were held to a higher standard than even the customers. And this is because of the hypocrisy of what they were doing and how they were living their lives. Actually, this hypocrisy by the religious leaders really sounds a lot like Eli's sons. Do you remember Hophni and Phinehas and 1 Samuel? Hophni and Phinehas were depriving the people of their portions of the peace offerings. And if that wasn't bad enough, more importantly, they were depriving God of his portion of the sacrifices as well. So verse 17 says, And so the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord disrespectfully. And in verse 34, he says to Eli, And this will be the sign to you which will come in regard to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. God obviously takes this very seriously and does not stand for hypocrisy and irreverence in his house, especially by religious leaders. Now think about the context of the culture we live in today. Think of how far we've come from even where they were. You know, today God's treated as a crutch to lean on when you're going through a tough time. Or we've all heard of the vending machine God, right, where you, you say a prayer, you press E5, and you expect to get blessed with a new car. Or if you score a touchdown, you can throw your hand up and thank God for the skill that you have. Culturally speaking, God's been completely stripped of his holiness and reverence. Now, after reading this and seeing that hypocrisy that was rampant during that time, and especially in the temple, we have to ask ourselves, what in our lives start off as a well-intended idea or rule or maybe even tradition? But since it was man-made, it took the focus off of God and it led our hearts astray. You know, our hearts can oftentimes become like the outer court of the temple. We can actually sit in church physically, but our minds are so far gone from worshiping God. You know, we start thinking about what's for lunch, which I kind of am doing right now. (laughs) We start thinking about what game we're going to watch after service. Or we start thinking about how that person's not dressed well enough for church this morning. Or how that song wouldn't actually be the song I would choose for worship this morning. Or start criticizing the pastor. And so we need the reminder to clean out the hypocrisy and jealousy in our life. We need to be reminded how great our God is and how small we are. 
You know, oftentimes a youth group, and I think the teens can attest to this, we oftentimes start the lesson by praying, God, please help us focus right now. Push out the distractions. Help us to be able to focus and hear what you're trying to tell us. And that helps us get engaged in what he's, and, and have peace and quiet before him. Now, there's an interesting point we see in this passage because we got to keep in mind that the temple was absolutely packed with people, animals, tables, and goods. And yet somehow Jesus, with a whip that he braided together, was able to get everybody to exit the courtyard. It's quite incredible. He did that without causing violence and sinning as well. Again, we're talking about a massive amount of people who had their livestock and money there. Think about that. I'm sure there were people who were protective of their livelihood. And when the coins were splashing everywhere, trying to collect the coins that, th- that were theirs. Now, there could have been a couple options here. First of all, it could have been a miracle in itself to get that whole crowd to exit the courtyard without causing any issues. Because really, if there was a couple big burly guys there, we have Taylor Bacon come up and losing some of his money may have come up and just grabbed a hold of Jesus, right? That's one of the options. <clears throat> or they may have all fled without even uh, putting up a fight because they had all heard about Jesus and they knew the miracles that he was performing. Nobody really wants to go up and grab a hold of Jesus, this miracle man. This miracle maker. It's almost like grabbing hold of Chuck Norris. Not a good idea, right? Now, no matter what the reason was, they all left the temple. Obviously not orderly, but it wasn't in a violent, bloody rage. Now, it's also amazing that John added that he made or braided a whip, depending on what version you see. He emphasizes made or braided a whip. Now, men, this question's for you. Have you ever braided anything before? Me neither. I never have. <laughs> in fact, when my wife's not around and I have to do my daughter's hair, you know what I usually do? Bloop. Put a hat on them. That's what I do. All right, you're ready. Let's go to Walmart. Or if I'm feeling real ambitious or it's before children's church, I'll try to do a small ponytail. And that takes me a long time. And it comes out a mess anyways, let alone trying to braid it. But we do have to understand this is a different culture, right? But this still would probably take Jesus a little while to braid that whip. It would give him time while he's braiding that whip to take a breather and to pray to his father while he planned his course of action. You know, we've all been passionate about something. We've all had that feeling where anger is coming on. And right back to Walmart again. (laughs) When you're in a hurry and you're pushing your cart and you see an open lane, you're heading over there and somebody cuts in front of you with a full cart. Your blood starts boiling. Satan starts putting thoughts in your head. So how do we respond well, I think we should all start carrying rope around, right? You'll see a bunch of us in Walmart just braiding rope, trying to keep ourselves from getting angry. <laughs> Jesus didn't lose control and react in a violent rage. And I think John's pointing this out to us. Jesus is giving us a great example for us to take our time, pray to God, and produce self-control when we get angry. However, that doesn't mean we sit back passively when the house of God's being disrespected. So as Christ's followers, we should portray a passion for God and who he is. I remember in sixth grade, a long ways back, (laughs) there was a kid named Jimmy in our class. He was the biggest and tallest kid in our class. He dwarfed all of us, especially me, because I was short back then. But even though he was big, the biggest, he was the most loving, soft-spoken, gentle kid I'd ever met. But everybody knew in the class that if you got Jimmy mad enough, he could wreck everyone in the room. (laughs) In fact, probably everyone's had a Jimmy in their class or knows of a Jimmy. He's what we call a gentle giant. 
And gentle giants are usually quiet, but they could snap at any time and unleash the strength and power that they possess. And this is what we see with Jesus. We all know Jesus was meek and mild. He taught turning the other cheek and loving others. We know he was the most kind, gentle, and loving person that ever ever lived on this earth. And really, that's what people love hearing and, and preaching about. And that's why so many people struggle with this sudden outburst that portrays Jesus as being bold or on the border of losing his temper instead of passive and gentle. You know, the view of Jesus today has been so watered down that he's painted as an easygoing hippie who loves everything. He just wants peace all the time. That is not the Christ of the New Testament. And I think you would agree this is not the Christ that we see in this passage here. Now, Kent Hughes, he's a great Bible scholar, says this about it. Even professing Christians sometimes reduce God, reduce God to much less than he is. Many have made a valid attempt to present the humanity of Christ so men and women can see him as a God who relates to them. But this attitude has sometimes been carried to the extreme. It's been so perverted that Jesus has been effectively and functionally emptied of his deity. You know, everyone wants a God that's palatable to accept, real easy to believe, easy to desire. But that's a way we bring God down to our level. Instead of remembering that he is the potter and we are the clay. Now, the story of Job, I think, illustrates this perfectly because Job's lost everything. He's in a rough state and he's complaining to God about his situation. And God replies to him simply like this. He says, and I shall ask you, Job, and you inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, Job, who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the measuring line over it? Wow, right? What a powerful reminder that puts us back into our place and remembers he's the potter. We are the clay. Are we guilty of bringing God down to our level? Just treating him like another person who we question when we get upset and forget who he truly is. You know, we're meant to have an intimate relationship with God, and we use that oftentimes, having that intimate relationship. But that does not mean on a buddy-to-buddy level. We must remember who he is. Now, in our house, my kids love watching Chronicles of Narnia. Any Chronicles of Narnia fans out there? Yeah, there we go. Now, my, my oldest daughter, the first Chronicles of Narnia is like her favorite movie. It's her favorite. But in the book, there's a part in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Actually, that talks about a lamb is making the meal, a meal for the kids. In fact, it's the best meal the kids have ever had. They love it. And now this imagery is portraying Jesus as the white lamb. And then he and the kids begin talking, and they talk about how to get to this land of Aslan, which is heaven. And now C.S. Lewis, he records it like this. There is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed, into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. What a picture. This shows a vivid picture of the lamb, Jesus, being the ferocious lion, God. The lamb is the lion. You can't have one and leave the other. They are one and the same. The cleansing of the temple shows the meek and mild Jesus unleashed the power of God in a righteous anger. Jesus is jealous for the glory of his father. And that's why he acts with boldness as he proves to those who are watching how important it is to respect his father's house. 
Now, Kent Hughes continues on. The scene described in our text is a wild scene. Men are grasping at their money bags and tables as Jesus applied the whip to those not moving. But the fact is Jesus was as godlike here as he was when he hung on the cross. He was revealing as much of God on this occasion as he did at Calvary. Proverbs 16 says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Having a holy, reverent fear is really what keeps us on the straight and narrow. We should have a healthy fear of God and the fact that he could squish us like a bug. (laughs) This sounds quite a bit different than that hippie love all except all Jesus that's portrayed today. And another story, if you remember Uzzah back in David's time. Second Samuel says, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Sounds like God takes his holiness quite serious, because here's the deal once again. Jesus is the lamb and the lion. Let's pick it back up in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead... His disciples remember that he said this, and they believe the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, back at verse 18 there, the Jews responded to the situation by asking for a sign. And by doing this, they're confirming what they're hiding and what Jesus obviously already knew, which was the true intent of their hearts. You know, God wants us to have faith without having needing signs or physical proof. Fortunately, the disciples remembered and they believed the scripture. But unfortunately, it was after he was raised from the dead. I believe the disciples followed Jesus, but now they understood and believed he was the true savior of the world. Now, Jesus' disciples, as said, remember David wrote the same thing in scripture. And it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. So David says in Psalms, because for your sake, I have endured disgrace. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and a stranger to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. And this is a spot in Psalms where David is calling the people back to repentance. He's calling them back to faithfulness. He says, I have a a passion that eats me up, and I'm despised in my own house. And now the disciples are looking and seeing this same zeal in Jesus that David had for the house of God. You know, it's like that Under Armour slogan that says, protect this house. That means Jesus had a strong passion for the house of God. As Christians, we're to have a strong passion for God and his glory. Do people, can they recognize that we get upset and and, uh, we get um, worked up when God is disrespected or brought to a low demeaning state? You know, oftentimes we see people in our life or or in our own life where people have more passion for maybe their trucks or their boats or anything. You can fill in the blank there than they do for their relationship with God. And now Jesus's passion for his father's house here was the thing the religious leaders actually used against him. Now, this didn't catch Jesus off guard as if he was like, oh, I mistakenly let my passion come out. I went too far. I shouldn't have turned over the tables. No, this was the plan from the very beginning. 
Because Jesus was here to rescue you and I from our sinful life and show us the new religious system of faith in him. And of course, the people doubted him. And they asked him for a sign of why he's doing these things and how he had the nerve to even do it. And Jesus was up for the challenge and he answered them in a way they didn't even understand. Has anyone driven by the Colby College complex recently? You've seen that new sports complex? That thing is magnificent, right? It's incredible. It's unbelievable to see. It's really cool. Now, that's taken two to three years to build. That's bringing all the construction equipment in, having all the foremans and whatever, the whole crew's there, bringing in all kinds of material to that one site. Now, if someone said, destroy that building and I'll rebuild it in three days, (laughs) would you believe them? Probably not, right? So now these religious leaders are hearing, just tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. They didn't understand. And so they even come back with a logical response. Seriously? It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days? He sounds crazy. In fact, I imagine the religious leaders were probably loving this. He was playing right into their hands. And this sounded like their ticket to get rid of him. Because this is a great opportunity with all those around to hear how crazy his claim truly was. Now, I believe John put this event right here up front of his account for a good reason. Because it's a sign of what the gospel was all about. Warren Wearsby writes, One of the purposes John had in mind when he wrote his gospel is that the legal system has ended. And grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. He is the new sacrifice in the new temple. And John will tell us later that the new worship will depend on inward integrity. It's not outward geography. Now, old and new is actually a theme throughout the book of John. And we saw that last weekend as Pastor Brent talked about the water into wine. And now the old way of worship into a new way of worship. (laughs) You know, my wife loves moving the house around. She loves moving furniture around. Oftentimes when I get home from work, my bureau's in a different spot or the couch is moved or the whole living room is shifted to a different spot and it drives me crazy because I don't like change. It usually only takes me about a day to get used to the new setup though. Now imagine how shocking this would be to those who were used to sacrificing animals and go into the temple for prayer throughout their lifetimes. And now they're hearing that he's putting an end to all of that by becoming the ultimate sacrifice. Now, they've always had to put action into the sacrifices, and now this new way of worship is based on grace. Now, the Passover lamb in Egypt took place centuries before, and now this would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb in Jesus that delivered us from death. And in this passage, Jesus, though, isn't only talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. He's talking about the new way of worship and that the fact that the church would actually function differently, too. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Or do you not know that your temple is, or your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? So we're now raised up by God. Our relationship is now restored, and we're made acceptable because of Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus was zealous for the house of God back then, think of how much he is more zealous now that his people are the temple of God. So now with each believer, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit is indwelt 
with a new person, with the Holy Spirit in them. And it expands the universal body of Christ. So now the temple is not a building, but it's the body of believers who are spread throughout the world, even in the remotest places on earth. Think about that for a minute. Think about the remotest jungle in the world. There is a good chance there's a temple of God there because of someone who's indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're the remnant and we're responsible to live our lives glorifying God as we're the temple. So as Christ followers, we worship with our lives. Now, as the universal body of believers, we need to snuff out and cleanse the temple when hypocrisy begins creeping in. We should have zeal for the house of God. Now, does that mean that we can't have a a Bible bookstore here on church property? No. What it means is we need to clean out the pride, the jealousy, the backbiting, and any wickedness that comes in to the body of believers. Now, in closing this morning, I want to read you a vision of John from Revelation chapter 5. And I want want you to keep something in mind, that this vision from John is the same author as the gospel account of John. And this is what he says. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slaughtered having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, the lamb is the lion. You see, our rescuer had arrived not in a worldly superhero way, but in a way of being that sacrificial lamb. He made a way for us to spend an eternity with him. And he really doesn't want our our outward worship to show others how spiritual we are. He just wants our hearts and an inward change that glorifies him with our lives. So remember today that the cleansing of the temple actually still takes place in our own lives. If we ask God to forgive us of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Please stand and join me as we close in prayer. Dear God, Lord, we just thank you for your great love. God, we thank you so much for being that sacrificial lamb on our behalf. Lord, and you restored that relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, so much for what you've done and who you are. And also being that ferocious lion, God, who comes in a righteous anger to show us your love. God, we just ask you to bring us back safely next weekend. In your name, amen.